more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It's October 6th, 2019, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m. and on a Sunday that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lisa Hildebrand. And I'm Lori Lutz. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we're joined by Jenna Curtis from the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. She works with Dr. Doug Robinson, and her research focuses on bird communities in along the Panama Canal. But before um, we dive into that, I guess, hello, Jenna. Hi. Hi. Welcome. How's Thanks it going? It's wonderful to be here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but before we wanted to dive in um, to talk about your research, you just gave us last minute that last song that we just listened to called The Shrike by Hozier. You just recommended that to us because you said that it's um, very... It's murder birds. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't love a murder bird? What, what? But it's actually biologically accurate. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. 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 So, okay. so what Hozier is singing about is a shrike, which is a songbird. It's a carnivorous songbird that uh, caches its food. It's small mice, lizards, uh, either other small birds, uh, cicadas. So it takes them and it pierces them on a, th- a thorn oh or gosh. barbed wire. And it, it saves its food basically by jamming it onto sharp objects and saving it for later. And so Hozier is comparing his relationship to that. It's really, it's deep. Wonderful. Wow. Yeah. Wow. He's basically saying that, yeah, his, his ex-girlfriend is a shrike piercing his heart. His heart. Wow. On the thorn for later. For later. <laughs> can't eat it all at once. It's a shrike to your shine and glorious I wish everyone could see the look of horror on their face right now. I feel like um, Lori and Lisa are shocked, and Jenna's just like birds. They're amazing. <laughs> well, we are excited to hear more about your research, and I think you are probably excited to tell us about it. So, uh, can you? Um, so, you do research at the um, in the Panama Canal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, first, maybe we can dive in and just give us a little bit of. Um, an idea of the place where you're working and we can get an idea of the location and some of the history of the Panama Canal and how that's relevant to what you're doing. Yeah, so the Panama Canal is this really interesting feature that shapes what is otherwise also a very interesting isthmus. So Panama itself, the country, narrows down to just this little kind of 
60-mile stretch of the isthmus right there. And so that's where they built the Panama Canal. So everything that we're doing takes place in just about 60 miles. I'm going to interrupt you oh. right there just because um, Lisa and I were discussing kind of what's a good comparison of what 60 miles looks like. So for our local folks, this is something, um, it's a little bit further than Corvallis to Newport, Oregon. Yeah. So, yeah. And yeah. so from that drive, you go from this massive city, Panama City, with over a million people to lush, uh, pretty much pristine rainforest and a reserve and everything in between, all within this very short drive. Um, and so it's not only very convenient to study so that you have a whole lot of different habitat conditions within a short distance, but it also means that uh, there's a lot of different pressures acting on basically one bird community. And so it makes it very uh, fun and fascinating to study. Right. So it's not only um, urbanization from, you know, Panama City and there's another really big city yeah, that Cologne is on the, the north side. So basically you've got a uh, rainforest sandwich. You've got a rainforest sandwich between two big cities. And so that's kind of a vice or something squeezing in from both sides. Right. And then we also have the actual canal, which yeah. is obviously also man-made. Um, and the way that that was kind of created plays a role um, in your research for your first chapter. So right. should, wanna... should we, yeah, let's just dive into yeah. that, that first chapter. So let's do it. <laughs> so starting on a very local, very small scale, uh, my research starts on an island called Barrow, Colorado Island, uh, which we often refer to as BCI. So if I'm saying BCI, I'm referring to this one island in the Panama Canal, uh, which was made, it was once a hilltop, but when they dug out the canal, they flooded this landscape. And so this hilltop suddenly became an island isolated from the rest of the mainland by the waters of the canal. And so um, very shortly after that, only a couple years after, um, the U.S. designated it a biological reserve and set it aside for conservation. And then the Smithsonian took over administration of the island, and they've stationed researchers on it ever since. And so we have over 100 years of, of data and scientific research and this legacy of information to use to understand what has happened when you take a rainforest and you isolate it from everything else. And so it's a little laboratory to study fragmentation, which is happening all over the tropics. You see pictures of people burning the rainforest and stuff. That's fragmenting it, and that's breaking it into smaller pieces. And so we kind of want to know over the long term as we do this, what will happen to those tropical wildlife and birds and, in particular. And so that's what we're looking at is over 100 years, what's going to happen to a fragment when you isolate it? Right. And so you because we have this like really long term record of, um, you know, that rainforest and what happened there, you were trying to look at how that um, community, the bird community on um, BCI changed exactly. over that period. Right. 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 So so we've had um, we for basically every decade since the island was formed, we've had an ornithologist there collecting bird data. And so I got the opportunity uh, for my first chapter to look at over time. Uh, how the bird community has changed as we've isolated it. And so, uh, for one thing, you've shrunk the amount of habitat down. And as you shrink the habitat, there's fewer resources and space for birds. And so you're going to lose birds. And, of course, we've, we've seen that. We've, we've lost about, um, I want to say, 63 bird species. We've, we've lost uh, a, over a quarter of the community. So over a quarter of the community is now gone. Those species no longer persist on the island. And... Um, we're, the next question is why? Why did those birds disappear? Why that number? What do they have in common that's causing them to be lost other than the fact that they no longer, you know, there's no room for them on the island, but what else? And so um, 
uh, we've had this hypothesis for a while called the drying hypothesis, which basically posits that not only are you losing space on the island, but you're also introducing a lot of new effects from the isolation. And people think, <laughs> I get this question a lot, oh, the, it's surrounded by water. Like, it's got to be super wet, right? It's, it's, in, it's an island in water. But what actually is happening is that the canal acts like a wind tunnel. And so you've got a lot more wind exposure on this island. Um, light, sunlight not only shows up on the, the island from above, but it's reflecting off of the canal. And so you've got more sun exposure on the edges of the island. Um, and this combined effect of sun and wind and exposure has caused the island to basically no longer be able to maintain humid, moist rainforest conditions. And I'm sorry, everyone who hates the word moist. I'm going to say it a lot tonight. So let's get it out of our system now. Moist, 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 moist. So it's really interesting um, how there is more water mm-hmm. there now. But it, but it, because the it's a hill, so mm-hmm. it's it's tallest in the middle and it runs so off to exposed. the sides. Right, right. And so all of the water basically just runs out into the canal. It doesn't go uphill back under the island. It just mm-hmm. runs straight off. And so if you look at BCI compared to a similarly sized rainforest on the mainland that's like within a big continuous forest. BCI can't maintain streams the way other rainforests do. It dries out in the summer, and it's those um, those drying, warm effects have consequences for all of the animals who live there. And so you found that um, this drying out of BCI actually affected a particular type of bird. Right, yeah. Ecologically speaking. Right, so, so when you think rainforest birds, these birds are used to a... a, a like dense forest conditions where it's it's always humid there's there's lots of there's very little light and stuff and so when you start to open up the forest and dry it out the birds that rely on moist refugia and the, the insects that like those humid conditions and and wet soils and leaf litter those are the birds that are disappearing from the island because there's more openings in the trees and there's more wind and stuff and so so there's fewer um favorable conditions for them and so they just disappear even that's just looking at the birds themselves and not looking at insects or soils if you just look at the birds you can still see that there's evidence that the the birds that are most reliant on moisture and um and humidity are the ones that are missing so really it's um an indirect effect Correct. That you're that you're seeing right now with the bird population that isn't there right. because the their food source. And so one concern there. is that when you think like, okay, you're going to fragment a forest, you're going to break it up into pieces, and birds are going to decline just because there's fewer areas. And if you forget that there are all of these compound effects that build up over time within that fragment, you're going to lose even more species than what you would expect from just habitat loss alone. And we've seen that on BCI where uh, people predict a certain number of species losses as a result of habitat loss. And we've lost more birds than that. Wow. We're, we're currently missing more birds than you would expect from area. And so we think those additional effects are um, changes in the environment, particularly drying. Wow. So area alone is not the thing that is causing bird no. species on the island to it's go It's a big extinct. factor. It's a big mm-hmm. factor because there's fewer resources, but it's not the only thing. Right. And so you've got to think in the long term, what else is happening? Right. And so this was um, kind of the findings from your first chapter. You were mm-hmm. looking at a very kind of confined scale. You were just looking at BCI for that chapter. Mm-hmm. But you've also done um, other work that was more um, along the kind of Panama Canal on right. the mainland. Do mm-hmm. you want to talk us a little through that. Yeah, yeah, because BCI is very unique. It has it's a preserve, it's managed. There's um hunters aren't allowed on the island. It's a conservation uh center and so it's definitely kind of in a bubble. Mm. And it's 
different from what is happening on the rest of the mainland, which is not not protected in the same way. And so uh, across the Panama Canal as a whole, urbanization is the number one factor that's influencing and driving what birds occur where. And when I talk about a bird community, I am talking about which species occur together mm-hmm. in a place, how many and which ones. Um, and so uh, I kind of got to looking at across the entire Panamanian isthmus, what landscape factors influence the birds that you get in any given location. And the number one thing is, is urbanization and the development and growth of cities. Even And uh, we're focused on forest birds because forest birds are the ones most at risk from habitat loss in the tropics. And um, they tend to be a little more sensitive to habitat change. And so just looking at forest birds alone, they are still responding to urbanization on the landscape. And so you were able to do this really cool thing where you compared um, bird communities in kind of urban forests so that you know like parks or forests that we find in the middle of a city or like Panama City but also then kind of undisturbed patches of forests that are further away from urbanization on the mainland right, right? yeah so there's this gradient of amount of urban surrounding your forest and um, in cities your your forest is basically downtown and and you've got sky rises all around you or your forest patch is within a, a national park and so you've got forest all you know the rest of the way around you even if there's you know small gaps it's it's basically one big rainforest and so um we compared and looked at what was happening in the small city forests versus the big uh non-urbanized forest to try and say well how will the growth of urbanization in this area change birds in the future um (laughs) and we had some expectations because we have a lot of existing uh research in temperate so north american and european urban forests to kind of go off of and what they found up here is that uh urban habitats tend to be more homogenous or similar in composition so as uh as the landscape changes towards human development all of the birds start to look alike. You will get the same birds in, in different habitats. Mm-hmm. And these are our, our urban affiliated birds, the the birds that tend to occur with human activity. You think pigeons, starlings, sparrows, crows, things that you see all the time because they're affiliated with human activity and human centers. Mm-hmm. And so they make all of the communities start to look the same. But that's not the case in the tropics. And so we were kind of surprised when we ran the numbers and we looked at it and we actually said, wait a second, all of our urban forests are more different from each other than all of the rainforests. Like as urbanization increases, forests start to diverge and their bird communities look completely different. Wow. And so I, it's um, if you think you have one big rainforest and you have about 300 bird species in that rainforest, and as you start to break it up and kind of split it apart with cities and other, um, other different uh, habitat types, uh, you're instead of getting the same set of birds in each of the new smaller patches, each patch gets a different set of birds, uh, which is not what we expected based on what you see in urban uh, North American and, and northern latitudes. And what's sorry, what's what's the hypothesis for that? Why do you think that's it's not the same as in temperate and temperate um, urban forests? So so one thing to know about the tropics is that species there tend to be more highly specialized. And so they are more carefully in tune with their environment and they respond very rapidly to very small details, very fine scale changes in their environment. And so what we think is happening in the tropics is that very fine scale local habitat conditions influence which birds end up in your patch. Regardless of how much urbanization is around them, what 
the forest patch can offer is going to determine what birds show up there. So if you have a stream, you're going to get a certain set of birds. If you have a steep hill, you're going to get a certain set of birds. If um, aspect and sun exposure and precipitation all kind of add up to make a very site-specific set of birds that will be different from other urban sites which have different conditions. And another big thing that we um, found is that the history of a forest probably plays an important role um, because uh, if you cut down, if you just cut all the forest and let it regrow, you've basically cleared the slate. You've erased the entire community. And as the forest regrows, if even if it's a mature forest now, at some point in its past, it lost all of its birds. And tropical forest birds are, are dispersal limited. We can talk about this in a second. But the, um, the, the ultimate result is that if you cut a patch, once it regrows, the only birds that will show up there will be the ones that were able to get back into it. And birds that are um, that can't fly very well and can't travel those distances to get back into their homes won't ever come back. So I think maybe this is a common misconception that people think, you know, birds have wings and so obviously they can fly. We hear a lot about migration and things like that. So I was actually um, going to ask you about, you know, these different patches. Like maybe is is the diversity related to the birds um, being able to interact between the um between the different patches or not. Yeah, so mobility is a big thing for tropical birds because I've, here's a profile of a tropical bird. They have stubby, short, little cute wings. <laughs> they have huge eyes because they're used to shady, dark, dense forest conditions. So they have big eyes. Uh, they have you know stubby little legs who are just hopping around. They have short <laughs> tails. They, they're really cute looking. They're all just round little balls of feathers. But it, what it means is that they're not great flyers. They're not like a peregrine falcon or a vulture or something that just flies and flies and flies forever. They make short little flutters basically from tree to tree and branch to branch in this, this landscape. And so they, they're not good flyers. And so... Um, have you studied this dispersal? Oh, I wish. No, but my lab, <laughs> my lab ran a really interesting experiment where they caught birds in the rainforest and they took them to the edge of the Panama Canal and they, they took them a little ways out and they said, okay, go home, go to your home. And they're less, you know, maybe only half a football field from the forest. These birds would, they wouldn't cross the canal. They just wouldn't do it. And they would either sit in the boat and they would refuse to leave the cage, even given the opportunity to fly. They would just sit there in that boat and be like, oh, I am not going out there. Things could eat me out there. It is bright. My eyes are big. I, I need some sunglasses out here. Like They would just sit in the shade and be like, no. Or they would try and make an effort and they just couldn't make it. And so they would fly back to the boat or they would flutter into the water and be quickly rescued. Don't panic. They were all fine. No, no birds were harmed. harmed. No birds were harmed in this research. But it did confirm that through behavior or their actual physiology, these birds can't fly across the Panama Canal and they can't fly across even short distances where you've cut the forest down. And this is true across the tropics, even in the Amazon, they found that once you cut the forest down, there are some birds that just behaviorally and physically won't go across the openings. Wow, right, because they're so used to either, you know, hopping from branch to branch, so very, very, very short distances, mm -hmm. or they're used to having kind of that canopy cover to maybe protect them from predators. Exactly. They don't want to be open and exposed. And yeah. 
Wow, what a cool experiment. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, that's the sexy science of birds. I get to talk about communities and numbers. Yeah, no, it's all great. So tell us a little bit about your field research and um, what that looks like. Oh, I was so I was so fortunate to be able to go down to Barrow, Colorado for three field seasons and, and continue this legacy of bird surveys down there. Uh, and we're just trying to keep track of who's missing and over the years... Um, who's who's finally gone extinct, who's come back, and kind of just tracking year-to-year variation in the birds that occur on Barrow, Colorado Island. And so I get to go down there and um, wake up stupidly early in the morning because the <laughs> birds are up early, and so you got to be up. And the sunrise is, is early in the tropics, too, so you got to get up real early. And then you climb up the hill, you know, make your mile or two-mile trek up to the very top of the hill to, to catch the sunrise when all the birds are the most vocal because there are some birds on the island that will only sing the first 30 minutes of light, and then they're done for the rest of the day. So you got to be there when they're there or you're just going to miss them. Right. And you need you need to hear the song because so in in my head, when I when I think about, you know, a bird scientist, you go with binoculars and you're looking in trees for them. But that isn't actually the majority of how you identify birds now, on, not on the tropics. So so research shows that in, in tropical rainforests like ours, 90 percent of the birds will be heard and never seen. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. That's such yeah. a you're high lucky number. when you see a bird out there. Like normally I'm like, oh, hey, look, a bird. I'm normally really excited to see a bird. But in the tropics, when you see a bird, you're like, I saw a bird. <laughs> this is the best day ever. Yeah. Okay, so you're so you're relying on your ears and mm-hmm. your hearing to be able to identify right. birds based on their calls, their mm-hmm. songs. But it's noisy in oh. the in the in the in the rainforest, oh, right? Yeah, three, four times more birds than you get in a dawn song out here. Actually <laughs> I think I've provided you guys with a clip. Yeah, too. I was just gonna say, I think we have a clip. So um we will get a little glimpse of what this sounds like. So to me, this sounds really peaceful and beautiful and lovely, but I would have a very difficult time distinguishing the sounds here. Yeah, lots of overlapping sounds. You got there's some howler monkeys down there. Those deep. Those are howler monkeys. I, I got distracted by like the fly or some right, bugs. Right, right. Exactly. Oh, there's lots of bugs. <laughs> bugs, you think? Um, there's also um, there's crickets and frogs, little, little like delightful frog sounds. And and on top of that, there's in that three minute clip alone, there were 15 bird species. What? Um, <laughs> yep, and all sorts of different frequencies, and they're all overlapping. So you really got to be on your game. It can be overwhelming. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you're clearly an expert who who was able yeah. to hear from that clip that there was 15 birds. How is there a repository? You know, is there an album of bird? Bird songs or Panama Canal. We're working on it, and, and hey, it's a great opportunity. Here's a here's an opportunity for everyone to participate. Is that uh, we're still trying to build a database of bird songs for the world, and so you can deposit them on things like Xenocanto, which is X E N O C A N T O dot com, is a repository okay. for bird songs. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll put up a link later so that people cool. can. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So so basically, uh, you can go there and you can listen to birds across the world, and so that's a good way to train. Yourself before you go down to the tropics is I made a playlist, a little mixtape of tropical birds from from the internet, and I I just listened to them on until, your cassette player. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, and my favorite tracks I just played over and over. Um, no, and it's uh, 
yeah, and there's uh, several other, uh, Macaulay Library also has a, a sound repository, and so we're just working so hard to collect all of these recordings. And when I was down there, I was also putting out recorders and trying to, to gather more soundscape data like that so that we can actually go back and listen and and do a better job of catching who's all singing, even in the areas where we're not standing at the right. time. So when you're out there and you're listening, um, do you feel like you have a pretty good grasp on what the what the bird songs are and who's what or do you ever are you ever like I have no idea <laughs> oh is. all the time it's funny I would not call <laughs> myself an expert and Doug if you're listening to this I I did not call myself an expert <laughs> by any means Doug my advisor is fantastic he's been doing this for 30 years now and he he can hear every little tiny tick or chip chip and he's like oh that is a chestnut-sided warbler or oh that's a uh you know there's a spot crowned ant vireo and I'm like <laughs> hashtag goals right yeah oh, and I'm like that was a bird question mark so anyway so so while I can I think I've got a, a good chunk on the most common birds and the ones we expect to see on the island here on the island um that makes it helpful so that I know when I hear something that I don't recognize I can generally say here is a bird that is not among the common species on the island now I will record it with my phone and mm. send it to my advisor and he will identify it for me. And so that's <laughs> that's how it works most of the time is that you just you know how to recognize things that are expected and things that you don't know which aren't expected. And that's right. How we and operate. we actually have one such clip that you sent oh, to your yeah. advisor. This is, so this is like, OK, so to set the scene, this is me walking through the jungle <laughs> for four days hearing this same sound. And on the fourth day, I was finally like, this is a thing that I should probably record. I don't know what it is, but it could be a bird. Here's the sound. So that's not a spooky swing set in no, the middle I of the rainforest? No, I thought it was a spooky swing set. It's a squeak, 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 squeak. Squeak, squeak. And so I recorded that and sent it to my advisor and he responded and said, that's a speckled mourner, a speckled mourner. And I'm like, uh, is, is that a bird? <laughs> but it turns out there's a, a really cool story behind it. So that bird disappeared probably about 20, a couple decades ago, 20 years ago from the island and had not been reported since. And then uh, we had the year before a record setting rain, centennial just sort of rainstorm. It had rained more than basically recorded history. And what happened was the island for the first time in a very long time was lush and moist and had a lot oh. of moisture. And so conditions were noticeably different. And so things like the speckled mourner, which we hadn't detected on the island for decades, suddenly we're like, oh, hey, the habitat looks nice again. You know, just for one season, they were like, hmm, maybe we'll try this again. And so so I know we talked about dispersal limitations earlier in, in flight, but there are some birds that can fly the 90 meters, the football field between BCI <laughs> and the mainland. That's all it is. It's a football field. And some birds can fly and some birds can't. And so Speckled Mourner was one of those birds that flew the football field and showed up on Barrow, Colorado Island and was like, hmm, it's wet this year. There's the food I like is, is kind of here right now. I Maybe I'll give it a shot. And so that one male Speckled Mourner was singing um, squeak, squeak. Singing its song. Squeak, squeak. Wow. And there were a couple other birds that year that also showed up that I was, that was the year of me scratching my head at every sound and being like, I don't know what this is. Well, it's a bird we haven't heard for five or 10 years. So that's why you haven't mm -hmm. heard it. But yeah, it's, so it's interesting to, that was a very anecdotal and, and qualitative way of saying, yeah, look, there is something about moisture and precipitation and humidity that's changing how birds respond. Right. 
And so I think anyone who's been listening can clearly tell that you're very, very passionate about birds. Um, yeah, also just some little insight into Jenna before she came to join us at our pre-interview earlier this week. She actually stopped on the way, got off her bike and crushed some walnuts for the crows to eat. So she's really, she's here for the birds. If you see, if you see the crows and they're dropping nuts in the, the road to try and get cars to run them over and, and I worry about them getting hit by cars. So if you can just crack the walnuts for them on the side of the road, then they don't have to drop them in the cars. So, you know, your car is safer. The crow is safer. It's just everyone wins. It's and I hope, you know, because crows recognize people. They can they, they know they can recognize people who've either had positive or antagonistic relationships with them. And I want the crows to know me as a good person. <laughs> <laughs> but what was um, I, I know you personally, but what was surprising to me that I found out in the pre-interview is that you haven't always been on a career path to study birds as I would have expected you to have been. It's true. I uh, I have loved birds since I was in fifth grade uh, or eighth grade, somewhere in that, that period. I was a kid and I've always loved birds, but I never thought I could make a career of it. Mm-hmm. That was like birding is a hobby. It's for fun. People don't do it for a living. And so I told myself this all the time growing up and I uh, pursued a career in interior design <laughs> after high school. And so I Naturally, enrolled yeah. in George Washington <laughs> University in Washington, D.C. Uh, go G-Dub for interior design. Were and there a lot of bird patterns in the interior designs that you designed? Oh, I'm sure there were. I should go back and actually look. I think I think the feathers were definitely like I was going to make feathers a thing. Um, feather but, pillows, oh, feather curtains. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Birds. Um, and so but I, I went abroad for a term to, uh, to London, and when I was there, I got to see uh, all of these amazing interior design students and their projects, and they were all so enthusiastic and so happy to be working. And I was outside, looking out the window, you know, keeping track of every Eurasian jay and, <laughs> and European goldfinch that I'd seen, and you know, the first bullfinch. I have a note of where I saw my first bullfinch out there, and, and I was like, there was a point where I stopped, and I was like, what am I doing? Why... Am I pursuing something that I that, that people, other people are clearly, they're so passionate about this. Why don't I do what I'm passionate about? Like, why don't I do what makes me happy? And so I had a midlife crisis. I went home. I cried. I, you know, <laughs> like I called my parents and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Uh, and they were so supportive um, and they they understood. And I changed my major to biology my senior year of college. Wow. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it, it um yeah, I worked really hard, and I I made it, and I haven't looked back. It's it, it was the best decision I ever made, was to acknowledge that I had a passion and that's something that made me happy, and actually say, you know what, life is short. I'm gonna go do that, and I'm every day I get to study and think about birds and look at pictures of birds and look at birds and listen to birds and I'm happy. <laughs> right. And what's great is that, so yeah, you completely switched your major and you did an honors thesis with the Smithsonian. Oh, yes. And so that connection kind of continues with you because, I mean, BCI is managed by, by the, the Smithsonian. Smithsonian. Yes, different, yeah. different branches, but what an amazing organization. Yeah. And I've been so fortunate to work with them um, all these years. Yeah, my, my first project, I <laughs> so I took an animal behavior class and um, at my senior year of college, and we had an independent project to go to the zoo and watch an animal and develop a, a behavioral 
it's called an ethogram. It's mm -hmm. basically a dictionary of behaviors. And like you have a code for a behavior and what it means. And, and you try and analyze what the, the animals are doing on any given day or time. And so I went out there and I did a project and I was standing in front of this uh, enclosure and the zookeeper came out and she said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm developing an ethogram. And, you know, I'm going to study these Cory Bustards, which is an African bird. It's the heaviest flying bird. <laughs> they weigh upwards of 30 pounds and they can fly over the savannah and they're beautiful i will send you pictures wow. to, to post wow. there please google them they're gorgeous birds um but she she stopped me and she said what are you doing and i said oh i'm developing this ethogram and she said we've been trying to develop an ethogram for some time and we have volunteers running a program watching these birds would you like to be the volunteer coordinator for this and help us develop an ethogram for our cory bustards and i said yes <laughs> yes, this is a sign. Please, please let me stare at your birds all day long as a, as a volunteer job. And so that was became my honors project is oh. that we, um, I'm going to tell the full story. Yes. Okay. So uh, basically, Cory Bustards in the zoo, they have a, a, an adult breeding flock and they were trying to introduce a second flock and, and develop um, a, a secondary family, basically flock. And so they had put several young birds together and nobody really knew how these birds grow up. It takes them four or five years to really develop their adult behaviors. And we kind of wanted to know um, how do these do these behaviors show up? Do they um, instinctively know them? Do they watch each other? You know, um, are there primitive behaviors in advance of the full adult um, displays and and breeding behaviors and stuff? And so we developed a unique ethogram to kind of try and understand how these young birds would mature over time. And so we we had the opportunity to watch them do that, and it was it was fascinating. I remember the first day the girls uh, began understanding that. Maybe they wanted to build a nest, but maybe I'll pick up a stick. Oh, no. Hmm. And it was just fascinating to watch them. They knew inside that there was something driving them to to pick up sticks and do something with them, but they didn't know what yet. And so we would just watch them pick up sticks and hold them in deep contemplation of <laughs> just like, I'm holding a stick. And then they would put them on their backs, like as part of the development of the behavior was like, do I put the stick on my back? Hmm, no, maybe I'll try something else next time. And so we got to, and then they, then it just happened and they had eggs and babies and it was just, it, they grew up so fast. <laughs> so anyways, it was, it was an awesome project to be able to work on and actually watch these birds grow and develop personality, actual personalities. Yes, they have preferences and things, so. Jenna, it's been so much fun talking to you about birds. It kind of makes me want to go out and some forest and. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I want to learn how to be a birder. Oh, anyone can bird. Anyone can bird. I feel so good about that. Just look yeah. at a bird and then you're like, hey, look, a bird. or listen, listen for them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I need to make those mixtapes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. So before we go, though, um, we have uh, two traditions on um, inspiration dissemination. The first is that we always ask our guests to provide some form of advice either to a future you, a past you, some undergrads, some other grad students. So yeah, what's your advice and who's it for? Um, this is for anyone, anyone out there. It's nice. just to like <laughs> surround yourself with people who are passionate and love what they do because seeing and acknowledging that passion and knowing what it looks like will help you follow and pursue that sort of passion in your own life. Like you need to, I think you really need to see what passion looks like and see what, when people care and are happy about what they do, it shows. And then you can start to, um, internalize that and, and make your own life follow those same paths and say, what brings me that same joy? 
no, I see joy here. What makes me that happy? And it's, it's birds. <laughs> the answer is always birds. <laughs> to all of you out there, yes. birds. Birds, yeah. Well, I agree. It's definitely contagious for sure. Um, so the other tradition we have is for you to choose a song for us to outro on. So I want you to um, tell us the song that you chose and why you chose it. <laughs> I, I chose Birding by Sweatshop Boys. Uh, and I think the reason is obvious. Yeah. Also, <laughs> it is the only song that has ever chosen to use the lyric plain cap star throat which is a beautiful species of hummingbird with a plain cap, <laughs> um, but a star throat. Uh, and so, so any song that references plain cap star throat just needs to be heard. I agree. I agree. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed this interview and learning about what you do and just having you here and um, to share your energy and your passion with us and hopefully with our listeners too. Yeah. Thank so, you so much. Listen up for Birding by the Sweatshop Boys. Bird song. Bird song. Bird song. You know I'm birding, baby. Bird song. Where my binoculars at? Bird song. I'm with the trees. Bird song. I'm looking for birds, yo. Bird song. I've been to hell and back and then hell again. Brown pelican. Streets is where I Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.